Revelations chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Before we uh, look at that passage this morning, just to mention a couple of things by way of explanation, our church is about to begin a series in Revelation. Uh, this is a sermon that uh, I've just written this week and we preach this Sunday, so you're my test run. Uh, I have thought, thought to change a few things to apply for us as a presbytery, I pray, uh, or as ministers within the presbytery. And... Uh, uh, Certainly my preparation in this series has been greatly impacting on my life and faith and I pray the same will be as God's spirit leads us into his word this morning. But I like to pray before I do that, so let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you for the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the way we share in his forgiveness, his redemption and his victory. Father, help me to speak clearly and faithfully your word this morning. We pray that you would attend power to the truth that is shared and that I will give an honest testimony for you. We pray that your word would have that deep penetrating impact into our life that both stings and sings, hurts and heals, that we may know you better and be prepared for glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've just come back from vacation, uh, three weeks away. Uh, part of our vacation, we spent five days uh, bushwalking in Carnarvon Gorge. Now, when we arrived at Carnarvon Gorge, uh, we only had a limited, limited amount of time 
So with a map in my hand, I planned out our walks for each day. So day one was the Moss Garden, the Amphitheatre, the Art Gallery and Wards Canyon. About 14 kilometres we walked on day one. Day two uh, was the Bluff, a wonderful lookout that we had to go up a 1,000 or so stairs uh, and enjoyed the view, uh, magnificent. Uh, day three was Mickey's Creek, one of the best walks in the whole of a gorge. And day four was the Bloom Cave with incredible Aboriginal art. On day five, we packed up, albeit a little bit exhausted, and we headed off to Toowoomba. Central to our time at Carnarvon Gorge was the fact that we only had a limited amount of time. We planned our time knowing that in a few days, we would have to pack up and head out. The principle is this. Your understanding of the future has a profound effect on how you act in the present. And while this is true for camping in Carnarvon Gorge, it is also true for the Christian life. Your understanding of the end, of your destiny, of the destiny of the church, of the world, of a return of Christ, of heaven and hell itself, has a profound effect upon how you act in the present. In fact, the testimony of the New Testament is that unless we live our lives in the light of the end, we're not really spiritual. I think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, uh, 26. What good is it if a man gains the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? I think of a parable of Lazarus, in, uh, Lazarus in, in Luke, where he lived his life with no thought of the end, but only the present. Or you go to the book of Hebrews, and it teaches us constantly not to be like Israel, who disobeyed God and never entered into their eternal rest. Live life with a view of eternity. Or in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says these words, So we fix our eyes on what is seen. Sorry, so we fix our eyes on not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It is clear that throughout the whole New Testament, fundamental to our spiritual health is our view of the end. Now, the problem we face is that as evangelicals, we don't tend to think or talk about the end times at all. I think, personally, partly this is true because the issue of how the world will end historically has divided us as sisters and brothers. And so out of fear, we've done something worse. We don't talk about the end times at all. I also think that for many of us middle-class evangelicals, life is so good and we are so satisfied with the here and now we don't see any need to give any thought to our glorious destiny. You don't believe me? When did you last wake up and say to yourself, Jesus might come today? How much of your life's calling, your ministry, your relationships, your family life, your values are shaped by the end, by the knowledge that one day Jesus will bring this world to a close? When was the last time you spoke to a Christian sister or brother about heaven, hell and our future glory in Christ? See, the problem is if we have a weak 
obscure or vague vision of our destiny, of heaven, of hell, of Christ's coming judgment, then we will manifest a weak Christianity. It is one that will be characterised by self-indulgence, laziness, a lack of assurance, and when tested by suffering in trials, it will easily fall away. This is why ignoring the message of revelation is so foolish. In the end, such a decision will undermine your spiritual health. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that we elevate this letter above the rest of Scripture. Not at all. But that we actually read and take to heart what Jesus himself has given to us. My prayer for my congregation, and I know this is not going to apply to you, but as we go through this series in, in Revelation, is that we will have, and I'm praying some part this morning, a clearer vision of our destiny in Christ. Our role as God's people in Christ living in a hostile world. That we would have a clearer vision of what Christ expects of us as his people and a clearer vision of how Christ will bring this world to an end. Why do I want our people to have such a clearer vision through this series? And I pray somewhat for us today is so that each one of us will live our lives in the light of Christ's coming, ready for our eternal glory, enduring all loss for the sake of Christ, mature and firm in Christ and his will. Now you may ask this morning, how could the letter of Revelation achieve such a task? Let's begin by looking at some of the text and we'll see. Would you please look with me at verses 1 to 3? We read these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. What we read in the very first verse of Revelation is that this letter is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus himself is making known to us things that we could not find out by ourselves. It's not the revelation of the Apostle John, but of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, mediated by angels to the Apostle John. Straight away, you've got to wake up and think, this is not a book of human wisdom. This is not a discussion of human philosophy or a theological debate. This is setting forth of what God himself is making known to us. Particularly, now not exclusively, but particularly what is to happen in the future. Or as John records for us, what must soon take place. We might want to ask, and rightly so this morning, how can we understand the word soon when it's clear that 1,900 years have passed and much of what John was given by Jesus has, remains unfulfilled? Part of the answer is to do with prophetic literature itself. In prophecy, even in the Old Testament, the end is always 
described as imminent. And it's presented in this way, not so much to give us a time frame, to, to make us ready, to make us sit up and take action. Christ is coming soon. Just like when the Apostle Paul told the Roman church in Romans chapter 16 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, Satan's ultimate death will only come at the end of time. But the purpose of, John, of Paul saying to the Roman church that Satan will soon be crushed under them was to, to lead them to rise up and be strong and bold and not fear the evil one. Now, a question has to be asked at this point. If this is the revelation of Jesus himself, what is he revealing to us? What does Jesus reveal to us in this letter? Just take a little liberty at the moment and give a brief outline of uh, the overview of Revelation and certainly where we're going to be heading in our preaching series over the next few weeks at our church. But there's many, many things uh, that Christ reveals to us in this book. And I won't cover them all now, but here's a few, I think, of the highlights. We read in Jesus' Revelation how he himself will bring about the conclusion or the end of our world. Uh, from chapter 6, uh, at really at the end of chapter 6, I think, it's from, uh, I think it's from verse 15 onwards to, rather, it's from verse 12 onwards, right to the end of chapter 21, so from chapter 6, verse 12, right to the end of 21, Jesus is revealing to us how he will once and for all deal with an evil and rebellious world that refuses to receive him and his love. Uh, let me tell you what Jesus reveals in those verses is shocking, it is disturbing, it is very, very sobering, and at times utterly terrifying for anyone outside of Christ. How so? What Jesus reveals to us in this letter is that the means by which he will bring the rebellious world to an end is by the pouring out of his judgment and wrath. Now, understanding this truth alone, in all its awesomeness, cannot but help affect how you live your life. Seeing a vision where Christ will one day ultimately bring this world to an end through judgment cannot help how you view sin, how you, how you view uh, 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 Christ and his holiness, his authority, his power, how you treat your non-Christian friends, how you view your community, your world, your family. It, it, it defines so much. Now, I'm going to come to much more detail of this in our uh, preaching series at church, but the end of a world is only one aspect of this letter. Jesus also reveals to us a number of things concerning our present life, particularly the life of his church. For example, in chapters 2 to 3, we're given a, a clear vision of what Christ expects of his church I think that those two chapters are a wonderful, wonderful vision because Jesus is telling us that he expects us as his redeemed people, for example, to love him, to have an abounding love for others. He reveals to us 
that we are to give up everything for Christ. We are to be champions of truth. We are to pursue holiness, go through every open door of ministry that God gives to us, that we are to wake up if we're spiritually asleep. We are not to be tepid, but either in church in the Laodicea where Jesus speaks to the Laodiceans and he says, you wish you either hot or cold, but because you're tepid, I'll spit you out of your mouth. I think clearly what Jesus is saying there, he's not speaking about being spiritually lukewarm. If you go back to Laodicea, cold water is useful because it can be drunk. Hot water was useful because it could be used for medicinal purposes in a hot string, but lukewarm water had no use. And this church, Jesus is saying, you are putrid, you are useless, and you maybe want to vomit. At the point that Jesus brings to us in these two chapters is an incredible vision of what Christ expects of us as his people. Now, I, I, I tell you, I've read a lot of church growth manuals, as I'm sure you guys have. Only one has ever taken me to Revelation. We have in these verse, in those two chapters, a vision of Christ telling us today what he does and does not like in his church. I just want to take an aside from what I preach in our church family, but how important is that for us? Do you know what Christ expects for the church? Uh, let me tell you something that I do personally. This may be of help to you or not. Uh, each of the characteristics that we see in chapters 2 and 3 of the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea, each of those issues that Christ brings there, I pray through for my own church. And why do I do that? Because this is Jesus revealing to me what he wants Foster to be like. I know what he wants us to be like, that we love him in an abounding way, that we are willing to give up everything for Christ. And quite frankly, this is being recorded, isn't it? Well, let's look at our own lives. Thank you, Scott. I know that um, in our Minister's Association we've had some great trouble uh, on that issue. And one of the situations we had was the, uh, we had a statement of faith put together and it included the infallibility of Scripture because two of the denominations were uniting uh, who is apostate and the Catholic Church that is against the gospel, they compromised truth. And Christ tells us, he says, I don't like that. That's not what I expect from us. What a great, what a great vision and guidance and instruction for all of us as Christian ministers that Jesus himself has given to us. I tell you, when I get to heaven, this is what I want Christ to say about our church at Foster. You guys loved me and you loved others. You gave up everything for my sake. You upheld truth, you pursued holiness and you purged evil from amongst you. You weren't asleep but you were alive. Your reputation and your reality was consistent. When I opened the door for ministry to the aged people, you went through that door. And you weren't useless you were used of me for my glory. Well done. That's from Revelation. I think as Christian ministers, 
it is one of the most strategic passages that we can take to guide us in how we lead our churches. At the very least, a direction for our praying. Let me move on. Chapters 10 and 11. Oh, rather, uh, so, so when we think of what is this revelation that Christ is revealing to us, well, of course, a huge chunk of revelation is dealing with how the world will end. And again, that is sobering. Oh, you can't come away from that, or I can't come at least, without feeling physical about it. We also see Christ reveals to us much about the church and what he expects. But also, just a quick skiz through in chapter 7, 14, 21 and 22, Jesus reveals to us in a most stunning imagery our destiny in Christ. And by the way, just as an aside, which is to share in his eternal glory. And this vision is given primarily to enable us to persevere through the struggle and hardships of a world that is anti-Christ. In chapters 10 and 11... Christ reveals to us something of our role in the godless world, which is to bear witness to the world concerning Jesus. So let me bring that together. When Christ gives through the angels to John this letter of revelation, he's revealing some of the most significant things that we could ever know, things we could never find out ourselves things that guide our ministries, our lives, our values, our family life, our our everything. Having a clear vision of your destiny, of your role, of the end of the world, of Christ's judgment, of Christ's victory, dramatically affects the way you live in the presence. Dare I say, how we lead our churches. Also, throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus reveals to us much more about the Father and himself. We see an incredible vision of Christ's victory, of his sovereignty, of his holiness, his power, his eternity, his goodness and his love. And it goes on and on. Can you see now, with that brief overview, why in verse 3... Jesus promises that everyone who reads Revelation and takes it to heart, which I take to mean obeys it, receives a blessing. What a blessing it is to be ready for the last day. How blessed will it be if we fulfil Christ's expectations for his church? The blessing of being assured of your glorious victory in Christ the blessing of being able to have the strength in Christ to endure all suffering, even if it's your life, for his sake, the blessing of having our eyes lifted off this world and into the next. This is no human letter. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, who not only reveals to us things that we cannot find out about ourselves, but has the authority to fulfil them within your life. That's the beauty of this letter. This is not just information. This is uh, the message of Christ and the gospel, which is the power for our salvation, our eternity, our glorification, our victory. 
When I was a young fella, uh, 16 years of old age, uh, I received a letter from Ansett Airlines. I applied for an apprenticeship. I applied to every government department I could think of. No one accepted me, even for an interview. The only interview I got was with Ansett Airlines. And I got this letter um, after an interview which I thought I failed miserably, partly because when they asked me if I had a girlfriend, I said, what do you expect with a face like mine? I have no, no idea why I said that. I got this letter and it told me that I was successful. I had the job. I started on this date. I picked up my toolbox, my overalls, and I could enrol in TAFE. That letter brought me joy, relief, peace. Why? Why did that piece of paper do so much for me? Because the person writing it had the authority to hire me the authority to actually fulfil what was written on the letter and I could receive all the benefits of being trained for a job. And the same with Revelation. Jesus is not only revealing wonderful truths to us, truths about your past, your present and your future, but he is the one who has the authority to fulfil what it says. So far from avoiding the book of Revelation, we ought to read it with the expectation that the Lord will bless us if we both read, believe and obey what he's writing to us. Now, while verses 1 to 3 make it clear that this is Jesus' revelation to us, verses 4 to 8 reveals to us something exceedingly important and I think fundamental for the whole of the letter of Revelation. It reveals to us that the focus of this letter is not on the last days. It's not on heaven. It's not on hell. It's not on a church. It's not on the final judgment. But rather, the focus of this letter is on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Please don't hear me wrong. This letter will deal with all of the above in detail. But the focus... At the very centre of each of those things is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And this is made clear from the very first chapter. Look with me at verses 4 to 5. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of of the kings of the earth. Now here is a greeting of grace and peace from the triune God, the Father, the Spirit and the Son. See, straight away you can see this is not a self-help menu. If you're looking for a 14-point plan to make your life happy, don't go to Revelation. This is the triune God speaking to you. The Father is described as eternal. The Holy Spirit as a sevenfold or the perfect spirit before the throne of God and the Son as a faithful witness, the resurrected Lord, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Even here, we are being introduced to what is to come in the rest of a letter because we're going to see that there's a battle between the rulers of the earth and the world and the Antichrist all those who reject Jesus and reject his love, all those who are described as 
as being against Christ. And right from the very beginning of chapter 1, what do we read? Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. The game's been won. Already won. Before anything in it, before, before we even find out about the churches, Christ is ruler. He is king. We have a triune God who through Christ rules the world. Now, come with me to verses 5b and 8 and notice who in the Godhead we begin to focus on. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, what, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, while those verses in 4 to 5a gave us a vision of a triune God, in verses 5b to 8, the focus is on Christ, the Son. Did you notice that he's described as a one whose love is seen in freeing us from our sins through sacrifice? This is one of the key themes throughout the whole of Revelation. How does Christ bring victory? Through sacrifice. Just let me share with you briefly. In chapters 4 and 5, there's a vision vision of the throne room. It's my favourite part of Revelation. Here is John the Elder, weeping with tears because in the right hand of God is a scroll which represents how the world will end. Here is a scroll that tells us how God will bring evil to a completion and the renewal of the world and no one can open it and he's weeping. And one of the elders comes round and says, John, the Lion of Judah has conquered. By the way, in Greek, in the Greek, conquered is at the very beginning. Conquered! The line of Judah, the root of Jesse. And here you can just think, here's his Christ, his death, his resurrection, his victory. Yes, the conqueror one can do it. And when he turns around, do you know what he sees? He doesn't see the line of Judah. He sees a slain lamb with a mortal wound. Victory through sacrifice. That's how Christ wins. And we follow in the same <coughs> footsteps. And here, at the very beginning of Revelation, it is laying down these most wonderful visions and themes that will permeate the whole book. And more than that, deeply strengthen our faith and our trust in Christ. Friends, not only is Jesus described as a one whose love is manifested in death. But we're told that he's the one who includes us in his kingdom. He makes every one of us as priests, in that all of us represent God to the world and the world to God. This Christ Jesus not only wins victory through sacrifice, not only makes us a kingdom and makes us priests, all of us, of God, but it's he who will come on the clouds and bring the world to an end. And this takes us back to the book of Daniel. And by the way, in the book of Revelation... The interesting thing is that it, is the, it quotes the Old Testament the least out of any letter in the New Testament, but it alludes to the New Old Testament more than any other letter. It is just 
overflowing with the themes from all of biblical history, especially the Exodus. Uh, we go to, we're told that in these verses that every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, that's a direct pull out from Zechariah 12. Then we're told that all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Why is this the case? Why is Christ coming and the completion or the finishing up of, or rather the final conquering of evil, why is this going to be a time when there will be grief? Well, for those who refuse Jesus' love and reject his kingship, kingship, it will be terrifying. It will be terrifying. See, what these verses in chapter 1 are doing as it focuses in on Christ is laying the foundation for what will come in the rest of the letter. But it's also making clear that the end of the world, the redemption of God's people, the coming of his kingdom, the terrifying judgment, all find their focus, their centre, in Christ. Now, you've got to ask, why is this significant? Well, surely if you and I this morning are to know and experience God's love... We need to come to Christ and seek it in him, in his sacrifice. If we are to enter into his eternal, glorious kingdom, we are to come to Christ and acknowledge him as Lord and put our faith in him. If we are to enjoy the blessing of being his priest, representing God to the world and the world to God, we must declare the truth of the gospel of Christ and seek him to strengthen and lead us If you and I are to escape the grief of a last day and instead of being terrified in the fear of his wrath, but be filled with the joy of his presence, then we must be united to Christ in his forgiveness, his life, his eternity. Now, here's the problem for us. We so easily settle for second best. Let me ask you this morning. What do you do when you seek to be reassured of God's love and acceptance for you? What do you do? Do you look for it in your imagination? There are some Christian teachers who teach that you can know a deeper love for Jesus by visualising your rebirth and the Lord holding you as you come through your mother's birth canal. It's called rebirthing. And it is, uh, it's been taught by a number of Christian leaders. Is that where you seek your assurance of God's love in your imagination? It's second best. Do you seek to be reassured of God's love for you by looking at your moral uprightness, your progression in your faith and obedience, imagining somehow that God is very proud of you because your good works? Is that where you seek your assurance that God's love is powerful and will uphold you? Do you look to your ministry and see its success and the fruit and the conversion of others and think that's where you are reassured that God accepts and loves you? All those things are at at best, second best, and at worst, a whisker away from turning from the gospel. Where does the Bible take you to to know the love of Christ for your life? The incarnation, the suffering and the death of Christ. And the same applies to our need for assurance, for freedom from guilt, 
for perseverance in times of trouble. None of those things are found in our imaginations, our works, our ministries, our relationship. Where are they found? The Bible takes us to Christ. See, like the rest of the New Testament, the book of Revelation is driving us to centre our lives in Jesus. To see that our victory, our eternity, our love, our ministry, our assurance, our perseverance, your joy is found in Christ and Christ alone. And may I add, add with his hardships and sufferings. One of the stark realities of Revelation is it gives you one of two alternatives. You either give your allegiance to the world and face the wrath of Christ, or you give your allegiance to Christ and face the wrath of a world. There's no in-between. And this is why we need to read and heed the message of Jesus' revelation. This is why we need to hear Jesus call out, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who come, is to come, the Almighty. For when we see Jesus, that he is the both eternal and almighty, the one for whom the world will come to an end, the one for whom we will share victory, the one from whom we'll be freed from the penalty of our sins and the power of our sins, the one for whom will strengthen us to endure even death itself for the sake of Christ. When we centre ourselves in him, no matter what happens, no matter what the world throws at us, even if we suffer death itself, we are safe in Christ. Sisters and brothers in Christ, your understanding of your future, your destiny of heaven, of hell, and the coming judgment of Christ has a profound effect upon how you act in the present. And this letter of Jesus' revelation to us not only tells us of what is to come, but of how Christ is central to both the past, the present and the future. And I pray for my congregation over the next few months that we'll sharpen our vision of our Christ-centred future, of our Christ-centred destiny, and pray that this will have a profound effect upon our lives. Uh, we should just pray now in response to that. Let's um, bow in prayer. Our gracious uh, God and most merciful Heavenly Father, whose plans and purposes are fulfilled in, in Jesus, uh, in his death on the cross, his resurrection, his uh, glory at your right hand, uh, his second coming, Father, we thank you for uh, the death of Jesus, that he, the Lion of Judah, is the Lamb who was slain and that he was slain for us. Father, we thank you that because of that, that we can look forward to an eternal uh, future united with Christ in the, uh, in the heavenlies. Father, we pray that uh, as leaders of your churches that we would 
have that vision as central to our lives and uh, to our ministries. Uh, we pray that we would be men who are prepared to give our allegiance to Christ and experience the wrath of the world. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, we would be wholeheartedly committed to the future uh, and that would um, impact profoundly uh, on our present and that as leaders that we would be modelling uh, this Christ-likeness to our congregations. Father, it grieves us that uh, so many uh, Christians, including at times ourselves, are neither hot nor cold but lukewarm and Father, we would pray that um, by your spirit that uh, you would bring about a great zeal and a passion for your glory amongst your people. And uh, we thank you for the word that's been delivered to us this morning and pray that uh, we would not uh, forget it, but rather that it would reshape us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.